I'm Devil Sangbe, and this is No Cost Extension. Today I'm speaking to Nandita Bhatt, who is the director of the Martha Farrell Foundation. Martha Farrell was the development sector leader who lost her life in the line of work. The foundation was set up in her name to honor her lifelong commitment to gender, justice, and learning. Nandita Bhatt also sits on the investment committee of the Rebuild India Fund. Hi, Nandita. How are you doing? Good, good, good. Just got back early this morning. I was in uh, Anantapur. Wow. <laughs> Sorry that I've made you do this. And we have another call later today. So I'm I'm so, so sorry we're monopolizing your time. No, no, it's okay. <laughs> but yeah, I think, you know, to begin with, we'd love to just hear your personal story, where you grew up, how that was like, what made you sort of even shift to, you know, where you're living today. My father was a tea planter, you know, and I grew up on the tea plantations in Duas and in Darjeeling. And I was in a boarding school, so most of my life was spent in a boarding school, one of the best boarding schools for girls in the country. And then, you know, growing up as, you know, a senior manager's daughter on a tea plantation. You know, today when I look at it, my life has come full circle. I grew up sitting on this side of the fence in the manager's bungalow, but now I work, you know, on the other side of the fence, you know, with labor of tea gardens, looking in. And, you know, it is giving me a lot of perspective and to think about how I was brought up and how I came to be in this profession doing this work and why others did not. So I think my parents really drove in, you know, deep sense of respect and dignity and these things and understanding where we are, the privileges that one might have. Because my parents did not come from privilege, but we were in a privileged situation because of the work that they were doing. For many of our listeners may have not gone to Darjeeling yet or never even been to a tea plantation. If you can maybe explain sort of what that, the image of that and what that really means, because it's probably one of the most beautiful places on earth. And as you were just saying, unfortunately, it also is riddled with quite a bit of oppression and servitude. So where I grew up, it was Duas. So Duas is the flatland, which is between Bhutan and India. So Duas literally means doorway, doorway into Bhutan. It's a beautiful area. And of course, they're like isolated in a sense, because you live isolated lives as a community of tea planters cut off from cities. And so you have your own community there, you have your own clubs and you have all of that. But then you have the labor who lives there. The women are the pluckers. So you know, you're looking at it from that lens now, say all the pluckers are women, all the supervisors are all men. And planters, of course, all men. There are no women planters. A couple of them are there. But then, you know, life is very tough. So therefore, very few last out and also you know recognizing women's leadership is another issue there so very few women planters are there largely they're male planters but the planting community you know so even in the planters community or the planting community so the planting community would be the ones who are actually putting in the seas looking after the plants they're all migrant workers, largely. So they're coming in from different parts of the country and they are there and they live there. They receive housing. So we were privileged to be part of a company which really spent a lot of time and a lot to understand 
this planting community and they invested a lot in their care and well-being. So, for example, there would be creches, you know, when they were planting, there would be creches set up there and there would be milk and bananas and there would be someone to take care of the children. So we saw that. You know, but that's not the case in many other gardens. So when I began working, I went back, when I went back to the gardens, we found a lot of gardens closed down because of, you know, no profit and things like that. But the planting community, the migrant workers who have traveled, who come there, are left behind. You know, others have moved on, but they have left behind. They were, you know, the sources of trafficking. So it's become a trafficking belt as well. And so there are those stories to tell, as beautiful as it is, there are also those stories there as well to say, and a lot of them are going out from, you know, so what next? What is there for younger generation to do? So through the foundation, you know, we have supported young students to research on the issue of sexual harassment because we feel that it's not talked about a lot. And interestingly, we had children of planters who are now studying in, you know, institutions like TIS planting community actually into so they went back and you know of course using the participatory lens and looking at the survivor centered you know frameworks that we have they were able to bring out a lot of data on sexual harassment that exists within you know the tea gardens as well so those are the issues now you know we did not see this when we were growing up but we did know that care and you know all of that but these deeper issues aren't that I'm on the other side I see it and I said oh my god why didn't I see it why couldn't we recognize it as growing up, you know? What do we need to do to bring these also, you know, on the table? Of course, now we have fair trade and there is a lot of assessment on these areas, but there's a lot to be done. And so you went to boarding school, like you were saying, and then you probably had many, many options to do whatever you wanted. And so what did you do next, I guess, after graduating from school and college? I did special education, actually. I trained as a special educator and that was my first passion. But I guess life has, you know, different ideas for for everyone. So I didn't actually pursue that. I went and I started working on issues of child rights and, you know, working with young people. That was a very interesting phase of my life. And then, of course, other things happen to you and you kind of start introspecting about yourself and, you know, you are brought up in a particular way, but it was a very calitarian, you know, way that you we were brought up. There was no restrictions, nothing. But then as you're growing up and different life situations, you see things so differently. So I went back to study. I did women's studies. Then I began working on, you know, with women and then on gender. And around what year was this and where in India were you living at the time? I lived in Delhi. And, but it's a long time ago. I'm not really sure what year it was, but yeah, it's a long time ago. I'm quite old. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're not. No, not at all. <laughs> um, and so then what was, I guess, did you start an NGO? Did you start working for an NGO? Like, how did that all happen? I started working for an NGO. I did a little bit of work for, you know, other NGOs and I joined Priya. So I lived in Nepal for a while. And Nepal gave me an absolutely different perspective of life. And I, it was uh, culturally, it was very different. I saw different forms of uh, discrimination and violence and inequalities. And But then I moved back to India. And then I began working with Priya. And we did a lot of work on systematization of the knowledge that was already there and doing a lot of trainings and awareness and, you know, just trying to place 
your personal experiences with what you've studied and what you're seeing. So when you say, do you come with experience? I think everybody comes with an experience. Women especially come with a lot of experience, personal experiences of having faced all of these different forms of inequalities, different forms of discrimination and you know, violence and things in their own lives. So I think I was initially, I was just trying to understand how can I help others so that they would be able to understand it better and would be able to manage it better or address it better. Can you speak a little bit about who you were working with? What kind of work was it? Just so we get a flavor of that and the communities that you were supporting in that time frame. So I joined Priya and worked with Dr. Martha Farrell. Martha had done a lot of work in Priya to initiate a lot of you know, work around gender mainstreaming in institutions, looking at women elected representatives and their leadership, and you know, supporting institutions to understand how to work around gender mainstreaming and how to work with women elected representatives, keeping women elected representatives in front and center. So I joined and then we did instantly we did a gender order to panchayats. So that was a very, very interesting experience for me. So I think 73rd Amendment had just, you know, at that point, because of that, women were being voted in as elected representatives. So then we did an audit to understand, you know, access, the agency, control that they had, you know, capacity building. And then in trying to bring out, you know, new narratives and understand to say, does one really design capacity building? What does reservation really mean? Who's preparing these women? You know, do they know their responsibilities? Can they, you know, in a society, in a culture where there are so many restrictions and on your mobility, also asking her to go out and ask for votes? How is that going to happen? You know, how does one in the daily drudgery of their life, how do you then not add to all of that? How do you create enabling environments? So I think uh, we were able to put together a lot of that, bring out those lessons and then you know, share with, with other organizations. We put out this online trainings for other, you know, for panchayat members, as well as other institutions. That was the initial work that I did with her. And of course, then we went on to gender mainstream of institutions and sexual harassment at workplace became one of the major focus areas of our work at that point. Can you just explain to the listeners what Panchayat is, and when you talked about reservations, because that's not a commonly used term in many countries, what does that mean in this context? So, of course, everybody's starting point in life is very different. And of course, because of gender, you know, the privileges, powers and the equations that one has in your life, the starting points are even more different for women who are coming into the Panchayat. So when you're talking about equality, you can't begin at the same time because there's always going to be an awareness that well we're beginning together but you know we are beginning at different points in our life so there is this gap you know there is this gap and how do we you know bridge this gap and so affirmative action or you know reserving seats becomes one of the ways to affirm this action so that you know you include more women there is a critical mass but then at the same time along with reserving the seats along with providing those affirmative actions, what we talk about is we need to prepare the ground as well for them to exercise their leadership. That is something that we miss. We give them to say that here, here is a reservation, here we are giving, you know, reserving these seats for you, but then we're not preparing the environment around them to exercise their leadership. So that's what we did with Panchayat. Panchayats, of course, are the local self-governing bodies 
in the country. So we began working with women there at the grassroots. And of course, we came across a lot of issues of, you know, violence that women had experienced because people were not ready to accept women's leadership. So therefore, it was clear that while you've given them this, you've not prepared ground for them at all. One of the ways that you can do it is we know that women are leaders, but they're just signatories. And there are, you know, the husbands go and represent them at meetings. And it's more convenient because they're just there. And, you know, many organizations who want to work at that level also just include them because they have mobility. They just come. Right. But then how do we working on this issue just bring about the shift and say, no, we heard in this village that there was a woman leader. We would like to meet her. So men very often we face this and said, oh, yes, there is, but she's making tea. But we would then we said, no, we would really like to meet her. And we would just not talk to whoever's in front of us until she came. Or we would just join her in the kitchen while she made tea. We joined her in doing the same. And then we had the conversation. So it's just shifting the focus to say, well, very gently letting people know that, you know, this is how you recognize the leader, right? It's more convenient, yes, because he's there but she's the rightful leader. So these were some of the things that we were doing. And of course, we began, we did a lot of work with young people around that time as well. And of course, we continue the same at the Martha Farrell Foundation. I think you brought up actually a very interesting point as it relates to the development sector overall in terms of the differences between equality and equity. And I know this is something at Dasra we grapple with all the time. And like you rightfully said, individuals, backgrounds, perspectives, experiences, and privilege play a huge role in what is available and opportunities are given to them. And sometimes I think there's a conflict between equality and equity. And to your point, if there are certain communities or genders even that are left out, in order for equality to occur, the equitable thing to do is level the playing field because it's unfortunately unleveled today. And I think there's, you know, politically around the world, there are conversations and discussions and heated debates around this. But I think the crux of it really comes down to the realization that the playing field is not level and therefore certain people need an extra boost to even level the playing field. And that's what sort of equity means to enable equality to happen. Yeah, I think that also comes with providing space for voices. So I think an important lesson that I have learned is learning to listen and learning to share the space and to learn from others. I cannot decide what would work for that level playing field. How do I bridge that gap? I cannot decide for you. You have to tell me. So I provide the space, the equal space. So it's about sharing of power. It's about respect. It's about dignity. It's recognizing your, you know, your own experiences. And it doesn't matter if you're an adult or you're a child. I think each one is capable of deciding what they want in their life, how they want it. And I think we need to bring in more of these practices where we really learn to listen. And of course, it is time-taking. It takes, you know, there's patience, all of that. But in this really fast world where everything needs to be done in a small capsule, you know, sometimes these essential elements get left out. So one of the things that we do is, you know, we really, really try to keep communities 
right at the center of everything that we do. Every project that is designed, every program that is designed to ask, is this really what you require? Is this really what is needed? What is it that we, you know, sometimes you can go really wrong. For example, when we began working with domestic workers, because we know that, you know, it's a group that is disadvantaged, experiencing harassment, we had certain ideas in our mind that we would like to do it like this. We had like one conversation and, you know, we met other stakeholders. We met unions, we met you know, civil society organizations and everybody had their own ideas. But when we sat and talked with the domestic workers, then they said, all this is not going to work. None of it is going to work. So it just took us a year and a half just to begin initiating the work because that one and a half years it took just to build trust. And I think, again, for the listeners who are outside of India, I think it is quite common for middle-class families across the country to have domestic workers either spend a few hours, if not full-time, in helping with, with chores. And so if you can maybe give it a sense of what this looks like for an employer, a middle-class family, and of course, above that, in terms of wealth, what this looks like, as well as then what were some of the sort of notions, I guess, that you had as a team, again, being very thoughtful and empathetic, that you realized, you know, like you said, were perhaps incorrect because your lived experiences is very different than somebody else's. Yes. In most of the homes in our country, everybody has somebody helping with chores. You know, either it is you know, cooking or, you know, childcare or cleaning the house or, you know, something or the other. So they are called domestic workers. And there are, you know, they could be part-time who come in to do one particular task and go away, or they could, you know, come for four hours, five hours, they would come for half a day, or they would be 24 hours. They would live in that house with the family. So which really technically means that you are on duty 24 hours of the day. So these domestic workers are largely migrant workers that, you know, in our country, I think 90% of informal workers, this is all estimated data is what we say, because there is no record of how many domestic workers there are, because there is no formal recognition of them. There is no formal recording of them. There is no form that they sign, no card that they get as a labor. They're not recognized as labor. So they're just women. And of course, because women are used to doing household work, this becomes you know, an extension of that, what they're doing at home. And everybody needs, because everybody's working outside. So you kind of have these domestic workers who are coming in from outside your state, incredibly brave women who come, sometimes come on their own and they set up home, find jobs, you know, put their children through school, look after their husbands who usually are doing nothing much except cleaning cars perhaps so there is a lot of informality in the work that they do so there is no cv writing there is no signing of a contract there is no formal interview there's just a negotiation of salary and then you're just taken on sorry just to give people a sense what is in delhi which again is a the capital of India, again, a very well-off city in that sense and well-known. What sort of would be the average salary for some of these women in the suburbs that you all work in? And what are sort of their hours typically and days off typically on a weekly basis? So there is no stipulated hours off and days off. Okay, some of them work every day of the week. So it's just how good and kind an employer are you that you are giving you know a holiday off 
to your domestic worker. It works like that. And there's nothing which stipulates the amount of salary that you should give. There is no minimum wages when it comes. Only some states have minimum wages, but there is no minimum wage for domestic workers, at least in here, where I am in Delhi and in Gurgaon. So it really depends on where exactly you are. And largely the resident welfare association is deciding or, you know, somebody decides to give more or somebody decides to give less. Sometimes somebody would get 2,000 rupees, you know, 2,500 rupees for, uh, you know, sweeping and cleaning and washing dishes. Some would get more. So there is no standard as such. So it really depends on how good an employer you are, you know. And of course, cooks get more salary. So there's always an aspiration to become a cook. Because cooks get much more than others. And 24 hours is something that they also like to do. Of course, that means, you know, taking them away from their own homes, from their families. But then, of course, it also means that we don't have to, you know, especially this happened during COVID, that you don't have to pay rent, your food is taken care of. But then, then also then the question of how much rest, where are they sleeping? The dignity really is questioned sometimes. You don't have a bed. You have to sleep on the floor. Some of them are sleeping in the kitchen on the floor, you know, under a table, under the dining table. So that's what we're trying to question is about dignity. कोई ऑफिस में काम करने जाते हैं कोई स्कूलों में काम करने जाते हैं और कानून है भी तो पता नहीं और जिनको पता है तो बात को दबाते हैं ताकि हम अपनी आवाज ना उठाएं जिसके यहां काम करने जाते हैं तो वो मुझे छोटे समझने लगते हैं चलो ये तो काम वाली है इसका काप अलग कर देते हैं प्लेटें अलग कर देते बैठने की जगह लेकिन हम भी तो एक इंसान है there is only one law right now which you know uses the word domestic worker and that is a sexual harassment at workplace act which says domestic workers are employees so what we did was we just took that and we used that as a starting point and an entry point to say that sexual harassment exists and is a reality for every domestic worker because of the informality and the vulnerability of their work. So it, sexual harassment exists because of all of these different things about no social protection, no identities, no land, no house. They have houses, but they have no paperwork. They can't open a bank. It's endless. It's endless, you know. And the fact that they are migrant workers from another state. So there's always a question of where did you really come from? There's a little bit of dissent. And the first question that is asked is, where have you really come from? You know, so there's always that fear that they live with and of course religion and of course caste in which part of the country and beyond are always questions they have to grapple with so the first thing that we that you know when you're working in you know in the rural areas in other areas we talk about collectivizing women and we say strength in women's voices one of the things that we learned these women particularly did not necessarily want to collectivize they didn't want to be visible so how do you balance that so that there is no backlash on these women? So these are things that we learned along the way and the groups that we work with have helped us build this understanding. Can you give us a sense of why? This issue is different in different pockets. You know, it depends on which community that we are working with and which part of Delhi or which part of the country you're working with. Now, these particular women are largely Bengali women who've come from Bengal. 
So there was always a question of where are you really from? There's no dissent at all. They're just always quiet. If there's harassment, there's sexual harassment, they will just leave their jobs or they will go back home or they will change their job or even attempt suicide. You know, there are young girls who have attempted suicide, who have died by suicide when they've faced harassment because they don't have a choice. They don't know what else to do. I remember in ancient years of our work, two, three years, the first time they really dissented was in one of the high-rise buildings. One of the domestic workers was physically assaulted by one of her employers. You know, she was scratched and beaten and stamped upon. And it was just horrendous, you know, what she went through. The first time domestic workers came together. There were about 300 domestic workers and their families came together. There was just me with them because it happened at night. Not one employer stepped across the gate and said, we are with you. You know, they called me up and I just left work and I just joined. And then there were 300 or more of them. At first time, they were asking these questions. They were saying, can you take action against the person who has done this? They were not asking for much. The police come and then they start asking for their paperwork. Where are you from? Show me your papers. And it was just painful and it was really, really sad to see this group of 300 plus women and some men. She just sat down quietly, just asked one question and they were just silenced. So much of insecurity that they live with, you know, every day of their life. COVID was so bad, they couldn't pay rent, they were thrown out of their homes. There were two, three families living in one small little room. You know, so it just, it's very difficult uh, for them. Just to remind the viewers, we have 1.4 billion people in India. 90% of our working force or working population are part of an informal, unorganized labor group is what it's termed as. And this means no worker rights protect them. And we have actually some really good laws in our country as it relates to workers, but it doesn't protect 90% of our working population. And so, again, one can assume whatever that middle class population is, let's just assume for this conversation, 400 million people in our country are sort of considered middle class. And let's just assume, again, a low number, but four members per family. So we have 100 million families that are probably employing one domestic worker at minimum. And that could be a cook, that can be somebody who's doing household chores, it could even be a driver uh, or somebody looking after children. And many times, again, in this network, you have different specializations, so to speak. So it is very common for an individual to have a driver, a cook, a maid, as well as a nanny. And so again, one per family is probably an underestimate. But even that, we're saying there's at least, therefore, you know, rough calculations, 100 million people who work in people's homes with many times not even one day off a month, no minimum wage, no redressal system in terms of getting a payment, a salary, workplace hazards, everything that again, a right worker is protected in. It's a pretty large population. And like you said, many of them don't even feel that laws are applicable to them. And therefore, the challenge of equity is far greater than perhaps others that are working in a company. Yes, yes. And besides all of this, no access to washrooms and bathrooms, different plates, different 
you know, different crockery, that indignity is another level. There are definitely caste-related biases that exist and religion-related biases, which sort of play out far more in a household. And your work, again, from what I've seen on the ground, works not only with domestic workers, but also their children. Yeah. We also work with the children of informal workers, but we also work with children in government schools as well. This actually began right at the beginning where we wanted to understand what do young people really want? Where are they? We don't hear them. We saw them, you know, after that unfortunate incident, the gang rape of the young medical student in Delhi. We saw the young people actually got everybody on the streets. They were the ones who really changed the narrative of, you know, violence really being everybody's issue. Because of them, you know, they led the movements across the world. But we didn't see them in the open after that initial time. So we were really interested to see, understand, where are you? Why aren't you there? Very interestingly, they spoke about, you know, them having different ways of communicating and the fact that they don't have a space, they don't have a platform to speak. There was one conversation that we were having with these 14-year-old, 13, 14-year-old girls in a small village in Uttar Pradesh, you know, of Bareilly. You know, those homes, all the families are engaged in doing the embroidery work that you see on, you know, Indian saris and kurtas, you know, all that gold thread. All these families do that. And these girls were pulled out of school you know, at grade five. And all they do after that is sit at home and do embroidery. And these young girls spoke to us and they said that, look, this is great. Having a platform is great. We want to do something. So I said, what would you like to do? They said, we want to do a campaign. So we said, well, you know, campaigns are very short-lived. You know, it'll finish. What's going to happen? So these young girls said, no, our campaign is going to be different. It's about changing mindsets. You know, everybody knows that you're not supposed to discriminate. Everybody knows that you have to treat us equally. Everybody knows that you must not, you know, ask for dowry or, you know, or beat up women and, you know, tease girls or, you know, harass them. But it's happening. It's happening because mindsets and attitudes are not changing. They said, we want to do that. So we were very clear that whatever we were going to do, it's going to be defined by the young people themselves. And finding money to begin that work was very difficult because there was no activity, set activities. We just were saying that we are going to provide a space and we're going to have young people decide what they want to do, what is, you know, how they want to do it. We want to provide them a platform where they come together, define violence, define discrimination, find their solutions and run with it. And we finally managed to get a little bit of money and then we began this work. So that's how it really began is what does it mean when we work with women, we work with adults, we talk about participation, but we forget what participation looks like when we work with younger people. We feel that if we just invite them, it's participation. So it's their program. It was called Kadambarati Chalo. You know, they said that, you know, one little footstep forward, one footstep is one question. Many questions mean a sea of change. So therefore, that's what they began with. It was providing spaces for young people to question inequalities in, in their lives, in their homes, in their schools and in institutions. It's about influencing institutions to take accountability for actions and providing solutions for that. And that is a program that we work also with the, you know, with the children of the informal workers, women workers. 
And so now these young children, while they are building their own leadership, are also questioning their own, you know, their situation. They have learned extensively how to use participatory research methodologies that you and me use. They use it themselves. And they are engaging with the municipality, with the panchayat, with the decision makers, and with the principals of school to say, well, this is how the situation is for us. You know, you are responsible. What are you going to do? How are you going to do it? Here is the solution for how you should do it. So at one hand, while these young children and these young women are exercising their leadership, there is an ecosystem that is being built within their homes and in their communities to understand and support this leadership. At the same time, when their mothers who are going through the programs with us are understanding and exercising their agency and their leadership, their children are you know, standing and supporting their mother. When the mothers are expressing aspirations, the children are saying, we understand your aspiration. We will support you. So how do you bring this strategic shift in the way of thinking? How do you change equations? So that's why we began working with the children and with their mothers and with their fathers to really bring about an equitable situation there. No, and so it's definitely a multi-pronged approach driven by the community for the community. You work, I know, quite closely on various topics with the government. And so if you can talk a little bit about the government interactions that you have, because I think they also have, again, a very critical role. Again, I think you've been able to forge very good and strong relationships with individuals there who also see all of their constituency as those who need equity and opportunity. And so if you can talk a little bit about that, that would be fantastic. So again, it is different with different governments, different states, different contexts, different kinds of engagement and different strategies to really uh, forge this relationship. One of the things that we have done is, of course, because we're working on the issue of sexual harassment at workplace. It's a law, it's a mandate that has become a very, very important strategic entry point for us, for all collaborations to say, well, employees include these, 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 these. Workplaces include not only offices, you know, the marketplace, somebody's home, your home. So while we support to implement the law, right, it is also trying to bring about a shift in the thinking of the individuals who are responsible for implementation. So that is important. So bringing about a shift in attitudes, in behaviors. So how do we then you know, do what we are saying that others should do? How do we in our own offices, so as an employee of this particular you know, district administration office, but as an employee who's responsible for other people, helping them really see this and saying it's the same thing, just as you would want to say, others would also want. So how do you do that? And the same thing when we work with corporates as well, we work, where we talk about this issue, we also help them to understand that your homes actually are also other people's workplaces. So your domestic workers are actually your colleagues. You know, so you're an employer, you are responsible directly by law, like you would want safety and your employer to be responsible. So how do you shift 
the narrative shift the way that you look at you know situations even you know challenging things like collecting data on violence who would want to talk on violence right who would want to share no why would they tell you what are you going to do with that data so how do you shift that for us the stand that we take is zero data is the biggest data if nobody is telling you that means it's more numbers it's huger and graver than anything else you want to talk to women informal workers and ask them about harassment they will tell you about other things they will not tell you they will say we don't know what that means we've never experienced it and why would they tell you how do you hold a conversation how do you do research how do you give power to communities to take out their own do their own research for their own issues bring their own solutions and then how do you bridge the gap so we our role is just to bridge that gap between policy makers and community you know we could go and create the committees everywhere but then would they be survivor centered would they be those which are are listening to informal workers and that will only happen when we provide space for informal workers to interact with these communities train these communities to say our lives are like this you know we work every day every day is money we cannot come to you every day when you call us so how are you going to give us quick justice how are you going to give us redress i think that's important for us to be able to while setting up mechanisms while supporting governments also helping them to listen and helping them to create spaces for others in the constituency to come in and speak i think that is important and that is what we are doing first of all amazing i mean i think this is the nuances the perspectives and each community even that you work in is so customized and different it does take a localized approach and i think with that really was one of the reasons that we build india fund was started which was to support leaders such as yourself and so many others who are running institutions that have a far more nuanced sort of perspective on some of the challenges there's a list of for example seven areas that corporates are able to support under our corporate social responsibility act which mandates companies give 2% of the profits towards charitable activities yet lots of times the nuances that exist for communities that you and so many others are serving is not as easy for then these communities to access those things and so Can you give us a sense of what excited you about Rebuild India what you have seen through the 107 organizations who have been supported this actually has excited me about Rebuild India fund and it's been incredible and I because everything that we really spoke about is what it stands for you know like you said it's not about building a toilet sometimes you don't you know even deciding if you need a toilet number 1 where is it going to be built who's going to clean it these are other questions that are surrounded it's just building a toilet is not enough it's about building lives it's about building minds or it's about heart and and i think rebuild india recognizes this and it supports small grassroots organizations who are doing this work it's incredibly difficult to do this work because you cannot see the results immediately it's very very challenging because you are also trying to 
there's a lot of backlash also because you're also trying to change you know discrimination one doesn't recognize in their lives sometimes because it's become a norm or uh, you're also trying to change these trying to bring the strategic shift in thinking and actually shifting power questioning all of that and this is incredibly difficult work and it takes time and it's about you know building resilience in the organization and the people who are in the organization rebuild i think recognizes this and the importance of this kind of work and it supports institutions to do this and having said this when you talk about you know organizational leaders they also have different starting points in their lives and i think sometimes what happens is the ones who have really lived experience perhaps not the ones who have a phd you know the work that they're doing is very critical and important work and i think rebuild recognizes that and when we talk about equity and equality i think this is what it is it levels the playing field it supports it builds capacity so that proximate leader would be able to you know sit in a forum in a large forum international forum and speak with others who have a phd and have had lots of experience of speaking everywhere else i think recognizing at rebuild you know we recognize people's voices we give space we create safe spaces for them to feel wanted recognized and i think you know there's dignity and respect and all the things that we all of us really thought about or we believed in when we began working here i think the heart is what really you know ties me to rebuild one of the aspects of rebuild is that an organization gets 5 years of support and each year as the grant comes in they are able to decide how that money is used and this is something that dasra has believed in strongly since 1999 because we are cognizant that leaders know the community the best and so with rebuild and like i said from a dasra perspective since 1999 we've been very very clear that the leader is the one who decides where the funding goes not us not definitely the funder and so with your initial grant that you got last year i think it's been about 12 months if you can share a little bit about how you decided on where you're going to use the money and just broadly what are some of the categories that you use that money and how is this different than other funds that you have seen come into either Priya or Martha Farrell Foundation over your sort of 20 plus years within these two entities largely finance which is so important you know finance uh, setting up hiring somebody to just look at finances because this is we're a small organization which is setting up so covering costs for that individual getting a trained person who will be able to do that communications is important how do we tell our stories in the way that it should be you know from community so that's a particular skill that is required so trying to get someone for communications trying to get someone for you know business development and proposal writing because these are important so trying to build that part of our work so we got someone now who supports us with partnership building but uh, we need to sharpen i mean we need to build that a little bit more but to begin with we have somebody for that so it's largely we have spent on you know communications finance you know systems getting our systems in place sometimes we have you know <laughs> there are mous that we do 
like with the government or with somebody else or with a large corporate and those MEUs need to be vetted instantly. And then, of course, lawyers are expensive. So where do you get that from? So we kind of have this at least to say we can actually get our contracts and all of this vetted now, which we didn't have the space to do earlier. It was just our wisdom. We went with it. But now we have that as well. So it's kind of strengthening us institutionally so that we are more stronger, resilient, more aware, and we are able to think more strategically. I think the capacity building support is coming a lot from the Rebuild team as well on, you know, helping us plan and strategize and building, you know, our own capacities as leaders, but others within the functions of the organization as well. We are better able to serve the communities and work with communities if we are an organization that is equipped, that we are strong institutionally, we have all the compliances, we have, you know, so how do you say tomorrow we cannot support you because we don't have any of this, we don't exist anymore. And that work is so critical, you know. There are very few organizations who continue doing this kind of work who say that, no, we will not build a toilet, we will not build a school, we will carry on building mine. And also then, I mean, initially we have, I mean, we've used part of it and all of this, but of course we want to pilot something. So the children have a plan. They come to us with a proposal. So the women and domestic workers have just given us a proposal. They want to start, you know, an alternative or additional small business. So they've given us this beautiful proposal. And the proposal is just a drawing of a sewing machine. And they've written all around it what they would like to do with the money that they would get, you know, if the sewing machine came into their lives. You know, so how do you support that? Where do I get the money to support that? So this also, you know, because we're talking about self-confidence and empowerment, empowerment is about choice and they've made this choice and they've been able to negotiate that space for themselves. So we can support and continue doing that by saying, okay, here, here it is, go do it. You know, now we are better able to do that as well. And young people are coming to us with their proposals and we're better able to respond to that as well. That's excellent. I think lastly, I just want to say that I know I was very fortunate to meet with Martha and I can't think of her being more proud of everything that you have done personally and the organization has done personally for our listeners. Martha Farrell was a co-founder of Priya and as Dasra, we had worked with her for about a year through one of our leadership sort of workshops and things we do at Dasra. And shortly after, she was in Afghanistan doing her work in terms of empowering women and children and was alongside a few other NGO workers killed. And therefore, Martha Farrell Foundation was started in her name. This is not a family foundation. Sometimes people ask me, oh, is Martha Farrell a millionaire or a billionaire? And is this her? And I say, yes, in terms of her love, yes. In terms of her spirit, yes. And in terms of what she's been able to continue to impact, even though she's not here, yes, Nandita, I know she's a dear friend of yours and an older sister for you. And I just wanted to say thank you for carrying on her legacy through the only way she would want possible, which is this work. Thank you. Thank you so much, Nandita, for this conversation, for all that you continue to do and being such an advocate for so many other organizations, both within Rebuild and outside of Rebuild. 
Thank you, Devil. Thank you so much for having me here. Dustrap Philanthropy Week returns February 26th to March 1st. It'll be a mix of amazing speakers across three cities, Mumbai, Delhi, and Bangalore, and of course, streaming online for all our global participants and supporters. For more information, go to dustrapphilanthropyweek.org. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to know more about our work, our work of any of the guests, or the Rebuild India Fund, please go to our website, dustrap.org forward slash NCD, where we've got show notes, links, and much, much more. No Cost Extension is produced by the amazing Baka Media.